Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show podcast, where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at UK the capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. today's show we're going further afield to honour a woman who died 140 years ago this year. A pioneering nurse and heroine of the Crimean War who, as a woman of mixed race, overcame prejudice and defied social expectations to do some truly remarkable things for herself and others. On the 30th of June 2016, the statue of Mary Seacole at St Thomas Hospital directly across the Thames from Big Ben was unveiled by Baroness Fluella Benjamin, OBE, in front of over 300 guests. It is the first statue of a named black woman in the United Kingdom. But who was Mary Seacole? Mary Seacole was born on the 23rd of November 1805 in Kingston, Jamaica, more than 200 years ago. This was during the period when many black people in the Caribbean were forced to work as slaves. Although Mary's mother was black, her father, James Grant, was a white Scottish army officer and Mary was born a free person. She had a sister, Louisa, and a brother, Edward. Her mother was a practitioner of traditional Jamaican medicine and had a boarding house where she cared for invalid soldiers and their wives. Mary learned about medicine from her mother, soon gaining her own reputation as a skillful nurse and doctress. A keen student from early childhood, Mary practised medicine on a doll dogs and cats, and on herself. She writes in her autobiography, It was very natural that I should inherit her taste, and so I had from an early age a youth and yearning for medical knowledge and practice which never deserted me. And I was very young when I began to make use of the little knowledge I had acquired from watching my mother, upon great surfer, my doll, and whatever disease was most prevalent in Kingston, be my poor doll soon contracted it. Word of the week. This week it's actually a term. So I give you barrel fever, which is an outdated term used for alcoholism.
Mary was still very young when the timid Edwin Seacole asked her to marry him, and she couldn't find the courage to say no. So she married the delicate Edwin Horatio Hamilton Seacole on the 10th of November 1836. They set up a store at Black River, but Edwin became unwell, and so Mary would nurse him as best she could. He grew so ill that they moved to her mother's house in Kingston, but within a month, sadly, Edwin died in 1844, followed closely by the death of her mother. These deaths devastated Mary. With no ties, she then travelled widely. There were two trips to Britain, and in 1851, she joined her brother Edward in Panama, where she opened a hotel. Soon, she had saved her first cholera patient and gained extensive knowledge of the pathology of this disease, which she herself contracted and recovered from. She was widely praised for her work in treating cholera and returned to Jamaica in 1853, where there was a yellow fever epidemic. Mary grew restless and moved to New Grenada, where she did some speculating in a gold mine. That's where she met Mr Thomas Day, a cousin of her late husband, who was superintendent of a mine. It wasn't a successful venture. Mary travelled again to London, where she heard about the Crimean War and how the nursing system there had collapsed. She made applications to the War Office, the Army Medical Department, and the Secretary of War to be allowed to go to the Crimea and tend to the sick and wounded. She pointed out that she had extensive experience, excellent references, and knew many of the soldiers and regiments, having nursed them whilst they were stationed in Jamaica. But she was turned away by everybody, including one of Florence Nightingale's assistants. She asked herself, Was it possible that American prejudice against colour had taken root here? Did these ladies shrink from accepting my aid because blood flowed beneath a somewhat duskier skin than theirs? In her disappointment, Mary cried in the street. Now let's continue with our story about the amazing Mary Seacole. Undaunted by the negativity in London, Mary funded her own trip to Crimea, now part of the Ukraine. She set up a firm called Seacole and Day with Thomas Day, her late husband's cousin, which would be a general store and hotel near the British camp in the Crimea. So, at the age of 50, with her large stock of medicines, Mary went to the battle zone as a suitler a person who follows the army and sells provisions to the troops. The moment she arrived in Balaclava, there were sick and wounded to attend to. She opened her British hotel in the summer of 1855, near the besieged city as a vestibule. The hotel provided a place of respite for sick and recovering soldiers. The Crimean War arose from the conflict of great powers in the Middle East, and was more directly caused by Russian demands to exercise protection over the orthodox subjects of the Ottoman Sultan. Another major factor was the dispute between Russia and France over the privileges of the Russian Orthodox and Roman Catholic churches in the holy places in Palestine. In the Crimean War, disease killed four times as many soldiers as battle wounds, resulting in the deaths of 25,000 British soldiers, 100,000 French 
and up to a million Russians. But to truly understand the significance of these numbers, consider the following eyewitness account detailing the British base at Balaclava. If anybody should ever wish to erect a model balaclava in England, take a village of ruined houses in the extremist state of all imaginable dirt. Allow the rain to pour into them until the whole place is a swamp of filth. Catch about 1,000 sick Turks with the plague and cram them into the houses indiscriminately and stew them all up together in a narrow harbour and you will have a tolerable imitation of the real essence of balaclava. Both sides faced severe logistic problems. The Russian system was marked by corruption, overloaded with four different departments, and also faced geographical constraints in providing supplies. The road through Simferopol was the only source of supplies, which was further affected by the military policy of keeping the bulk of provisions away from the front lines. The British system was also faced by severe supply shortages, its ships such as the Prince being sunk, as well as by the failure of the army medical services to provide important supplies such as chloroform or rations with vitamin C to avoid scurvy. All in all, the Crimean War caused needless bloodshed, but also facilitated medical innovations that revolutionised medical practice. Perhaps more than just divided over ideological differences, doctors on both sides of the war were united by the common goal of improving medicine itself. Coming up now is something completely new and different. Let me know what you think. The Big Bristol to London Stroll. Hello and welcome to the Big Bristol to London Stroll, where we take you along the scenic routes via canals on a gentle walk to our capital. Along the way, we'll discuss the places we see and anything we spot that takes our fancy. Sometimes, we're even joined along the way by family and friends. So come join us as we take the Big Stroll. I'm not going to lie to you, but the whole idea for this walk was my husband's, who thought that after spending our lockdown walking around our local area in circles, we could use our newfound fitness level and do something a little more ambitious. So once a week for the past few months, we've been walking a section at a time, taking in the sights and sounds and sometimes the food, on our big walk to London. And our first part takes us to Bitten. Our first stop of interest was actually Mangotsfield Railway Station, which was a Midland railway route between Bristol and Birmingham. The station was opened in 1845 by the Bristol and Gloucester Railway, but had very little in the way of passenger amenities. The station was then recited in 1869 to serve the new Mangotsfield and Bath branch line and became an important junction station with extensive facilities and six platforms if you walk there now, all you'll find is the shell of the main building, which houses a lovely green area. The platforms are still there, and where there was once a pillar holding up the roof, there now stands a lovely tree. Did you know that the actor Arnold Ridley, who played Private Godfrey in Dad's Army, was once stranded at the station, 
and the sound of a train passing on the eastern side of the triangle, out of sight of the station, inspired him to write his play, The Ghost Train. About two and a half kilometres further down the cycle path, you get to the Warmley waiting room. Converted from the original train station in Warmley, this fantastic little gem is great and is usually packed when the weather is nice. It serves all the usuals as well as an amazing bacon butty. The current owner, John Lindsay, talked to me about what he was up to over lockdown as well as the history of the area. Just before the last lockdown, because I knew with the summer house we needed to make it into like a destination for people to actually come to, so I turned it into like a mini museum. So there's lots of framed photos in there from when the actual railway was in use here and old photos of the waiting room before it became on the cycle path as well. So some of the photos in there uh, date back to 1906. Um, the railway here opened in 1867 was when it first got established. So the tramway is the path on this side of the waiting room, which was where I believe, or there's a bit of contention about this, was where the farmers used to take their livestock from Bristol to Bath um, along the tramway. And that's why the railway line followed the line of the tramway. So that's where it is. So we've got the tramway that side, the railway that side. And yes, the photos do date back and it shows the railway going through the stages of when it had, um, to begin with, there was an iron bridge going over the railway and then a bit later they boarded it up to give the passengers a bit more protection from the weather. And then also in the railway here on the sidings behind, it was quite an industrial area here. So they used to export uh, motorbikes because they were made fairly locally and then on the other side of here where is now the woodland that was a massive uh, great pipe works big industrial where they used to have okra as well so the whole area used to be red and orange from the okra and the pipes and you walk along there now still out in the, the woods just there in actual fact we've been one of the very very lucky few in the pandemic has been very good to us although we've been closed a lot so we were closed for 62 days in the first uh, lockdown in november we closed for four weeks and then we closed again for 62 days in the third one so just from january to march outside of that when we've reopened from the lockdowns we've been busier than we've ever been and it's basically because people can't really go anywhere else and the cycle path became hugely popular um, most bike shops after the first lockdown they sold out of bikes so people couldn't get hold of them so people were exercising more apart from the convenient location and lovely setting there's one more thing that makes this warmly waiting room unique the TARDIS, Doctor Who TARDIS toilet, we had to replace it last year. So that is a brand new structure there because the original one was really, it was a like a movie set build. It was only made of softwood, so should never have been outside. And it was just on some breeze blocks. So we thought we were going to have to get it just a little bit of repair. But after a day, the carpenters said, nope, it's condemned. It was rotten from the top to the bottom. 
So the whole thing got demolished and totally rebuilt. So we spent a huge amount of money on, on a replacing it because it being listed in the top 100 moves of the world book, we couldn't not have it. A lot of here is known on, in cycling communities from the TARDIS, so Sustrans, who are the cycling one of the network, you speak to people from Sustrans and say where you're from, They're, they say, is that the one with the Doctor Who toilet? So, yeah, we had to, we had to replace it. Do you get people who come here specifically to use the Doctor Who toilet? Oh yeah, yeah, lots of people come along. We've had people coming here to do filming, to make films, things that they're doing. Other people come and want their photos taken with it, so yes. But if we have a pound for every person who says, is it bigger on the inside, or will I come out in a different planet or a different time limit? That's the end of this week's instalment. In our next one, we'll be starting off at Bitten Railway Station. And now let's continue with our story about the amazing Mary Seacole. At the time, Mary was as well known in Britain as Florence Nightingale. Miss Nightingale's famous military hospital was situated hundreds of miles from the front line but Mary's hotel, near Balaclava, was much closer to the fighting. Mary was able to visit the battlefield, sometimes under fire, to nurse the wounded. Indeed, she nursed six soldiers so kindly that they called her Mother Seacole. The soldiers were her sons, and she was their mother. She said of her time in the Crimea, The deaths in the trenches touched me deeply, perhaps for this reason. It was very unusual when a young officer was ordered into the trenches for him to ride down to Spring Hill to dine or obtain something more than his ordinary fare to brighten his weary hours in those fearful ditches. They seldom failed on those occasions to shake me by the hand at parting and sometimes would say, You see, Mrs. Seacole, I can't say goodbye to the dear ones at the home, so I'll bid you goodbye for them. Perhaps you'll see them some day, and if the Russians should knock me over, Mother, just tell them I thought of them all, will you? And although this might be said in light-hearted manner, it was rather solemn. I felt it to be so, for I never failed to say anything about God's providence and relying upon it, and they were very good. No army of parsons could be much better than my sons. They would listen very gravely and shake me by the hand, while I felt that there was nothing in the world I would not do for them. Then, very often, Mint would say, I'm going with my master tonight, Mrs. Seacol. Come and look after him if he's hit. And so often as this happened, I would pass the night restlessly, awaiting with anxiety the morning, and yet dreading to hear the news it was held in store for me. I used to think it was like having a large family of children, ill with fever, dreading to hear which had passed away in the night. Though some of the army doctors, despite her saving them a lot of work, regarded her with disdain, others were less bigoted. An assistant surgeon at the 90th Light Infantry watched with admiration as she, numb with cold, would administer to the soldiers, giving them tea and food and words of comfort. She was often on the front line and frequently under fire. At one point, 
a Russian officer nearly bit her finger off as she was trying to treat his shattered jaw. She would later say that he didn't mean to do it. It was W.H. Russell, an Irishman who was the first modern war correspondent to make Mary Seacole famous. He described her as a warm and successful physician who doctors and cures all manner of men with extraordinary success. She is always in attendance near the battlefield to aid the wounded and has earned many a poor fellow's blessing. She was, as she had promised herself, the first woman to enter Sevastopol when it fell. The end of the war left Seacole and Day with expensive and unsaleable stores on their hands. They went bankrupt in October 1856 and Mary returned to England, a financially ruined woman. Nearly all the debts due to the estate as owing were by officers in the army. In one instance, a Captain Maclare asked Mary to cash his draft. It was then discovered to be a forgery, but by that time... He had long gone. The Times demanded how could anyone forget the amazing things that Mary had done and praise only Florence Nightingale. Lord Rokeby and Lord Paget, both Crimean commanders, organised a benefit festival at the Royal Surrey Gardens in Kensington to raise money for Mary. There were over 1,000 performers and her name was shouted by a thousand voices. A fund was set up by her friends, including the royal family, which also helped Mary to live out the rest of her life comfortably. In 1856, the Turkish government gave Mary a medal for services to the Turkish troops when they were encamped near her place in the winter of 1855. During a formal dinner to the guards in the Surrey Gardens in Cheltenham, Mary's appearance in front of the 20,000 strong guests caused such an excitement that cheers went up. She was in such demand from the soldiers who wanted to talk to her and thank her for all she'd done that two sergeants gallantly undertook it upon themselves to act as her guards and protect her from the pressure of the crowd. Mary, though, was at no point alarmed. In fact, she is said to have been most gracious. In 1857, Mary published her autobiography, an outstandingly vivid piece of writing called The Wonderful Adventures of Mrs Seacole in Many Lands, which was prefaced by W.H. Russell. I trust that England will not forget one who nursed her sick, who sought out her wounded to aid and succour them, and who performed the last offices for some of her illustrious dead. Still, the last 25 years of her life, however, were spent in obscurity, when she died at her home in London on the 14th of May, 1881. Mary is buried in St Mary's Roman Catholic Cemetery, Kensal Green, Greater London. When she died, she left an estate valued at over £2,600, but was buried in an unmarked grave. On November 26, 1973, a ceremony was held to mark the placing of a tombstone by the Lignern Vitae Club, a Jamaican women's organisation in London, and the Jamaican Nurses Association. During the memorial mass, which took place in the chapel adjoining the cemetery, Miss Elise Gordon, Secretary of the British Commonwealth Nurses War Memorial Fund, said of Mary Seacole, Today we pay tribute to a great nurse, Mary Seacole of Jamaica, 
She was born in 1805, according to her own statement in Kingston. Her mother was a Creole, her father a Scottish soldier. To her father, she ascribes her love of camp life and her energy and activity. From her mother, she undoubtedly inherited her love of nursing. But today, we remember this brave, compassionate woman through the joint interest of the Lignum Vitae Club, an organisation of Jamaican women in London, and the British Commonwealth Nurses War Memorial Fund. Mary Seacole's name and fame are inscribed once more in letters of gold and blue over her resting place, which is to be reconsecrated in the presence of Jamaica's highest representative in this country and her own colleagues. The Nurses Association of Jamaica will maintain it in repair forever. Let us remember Mary Seacole with gratitude and pride. Another ceremony was held on the centenary of her death, and this has become an annual event. Her adventures were reprinted in 1984, and in February 2004, she was voted the greatest Black Briton of all time. Today, the NHS recognises the valuable contribution Mary made in a variety of ways. The Mary C. Cole Programme is a six-month leadership development programme which was designed by the NHS Leadership Academy in partnership with global experts Corn Ferry Hay Group to develop knowledge and skills in leadership and management. Hey, hey! Are you that weird one in your friends group that loves to watch true crime documentaries? Have you ever wanted to learn more about the lesser known crimes? And are you fascinated with ghost stories? I'm Hannah, the creator, editor, and host of Murder Bucket, a podcast that talks about, get this, murders, paranormal activity, abductions, kidnappings, and weird stuff. Join me every Tuesday, wherever you listen to podcasts, to get the inside scoop on some of the most interesting topics in the true crime world. I am also very active on social media. You can find me on Instagram at MurdBucket, Facebook at BucketMurd, and Twitter at TheMurderBucket. Breaking news today, boffins have discovered that 10 plus 10 and 11 plus 11 are the same thing, because 10 plus 10 is 20, and 11 plus 11 is 22. in the day facts let's start off with the 15th of may 1800 when king george iii survived an assassination attempt by james hadfield at the drury lane theater in london on the 16th of may in 1938 the women's voluntary service for air raid precautions was founded 
On the 17th of May, 1978, the body of Charlie Chaplin was found buried in a field 11 weeks after it had been stolen from his grave. In 1951, on the 18th of May, the UK's first four-engine jet bomber, the Vickers Valiant, made its maiden flight from Wisley, Surrey. And on the 20th of May in 1927, Charles Lindbergh set off from New York on the first non-stop solar flight across the Atlantic in the monoplane Spirit of St. Louis. He arrived in Paris the next day after a 33-and-a-half-hour crossing. Exactly five years later, on the 20th of May, 1932, Amelia Earhart set off from Newfoundland on the first solo transatlantic flight by a woman. Her journey was shorter in time and distance. She landed in Ireland after less than 15 hours in the air. For his achievement, Lindbergh received the prize of $25,000 and the Congressional Medal of Honour. Earhart also received a number of awards, including Outstanding Woman of the Year. The media coverage of her achievements included the question, Can she bake a cake? To which Earhart replied, I accept these awards on behalf of the cake bakers and all those other women who can do some things quite as important, if not more important than flying, as well as in the name of women flying today. And also on the 20th of May in 1946, the singer and actress Cher was born. Before I go, I'd just like to say that the big stroll mentioned earlier is being done in memory of Sarah, who is not only a huge fan of the show, sending in ideas and positive vibes, but also a friend who sadly passed away last month. We're hoping to raise money for the local charity Suicide Prevention Bristol. If you would like to donate, then just pop along to Just Giving and type in Backtracker and the page should come up for you. A huge thank you, as always, goes out to all those who helped bring the story to life. They include Nikki Smith, Mike Clark, Sam Vernon and Molly Jeffries. You have been listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or, alternatively, you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk. By the way, the tune in the background, that's by The Model Folk. You can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com. So thank you so much for listening. And until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>